Chapter 10 Dust fell from the ceiling of the underground cell, leaving a fine scattering over the broken figure strapped onto the interrogation slab. The court uh, couldn't tell whether the vibrations came from the impact of shells falling into the Arbites compound overhead or from the answering shots fired back by the defending macro-cannon turrets. After this long, the sounds of the artillery duel that had reduced much of the outer compound to smoking rubble now merged into one continuous rumble. Court looked down dispassionately at the body strapped down on the slab in front of him, seeing the signs of imminent death written on the man's broken and bloody features. We're losing him again. Give him another stim shot, he ordered the Arbites surgeon. This is probably the last time I'll be able to revive him. His heart won't hold out much longer, warned the surgeon. He's not ready to die, growled Court. He hasn't told me everything he wants to yet. The surgeon shrugged, adjusting the controls of the med array and sending a carefully measured amount of stim chem surging through the tubes leading into the man's skin. The patient convulsed as the artificial stimulants kick-started his body into life again. Gasping, he coughed up blood and tissue matter, which the surgeon automatically wiped away with a cloth. The man's torn lips opened and closed, forming silent words. Court leaned in closer to hear what the dying man was struggling to say. It was not unknown for captured heretics to bite down on poison capsules hidden in their teeth, hoping to take their interrogators with them with their last toxin-filled breath. Court was not worried. Even if the prisoner's mouth had not already been checked, the man had no remaining unbroken teeth left in which to hide such a capsule. Court knew this man. He had been a captain in the PDF Palace Guard, and he knew, too, the phenomenon he was now witnessing. Captured in the latest and barely repulsed ground attack on the courthouse's defences, the dying heretic was recanting his treachery against the Emperor. Those weak and foolish dupes lured into the service of the Dark Powers often made such confessions, realising too late the true nature of the powers they had aligned themselves with. Yes, Court had done this many times before, just as he had heard the words, desperate pleas for forgiveness, pathetic rationales for the heretic's treachery, terrible and hate-filled retellings of the crimes they had committed in the name of their new masters, now issuing in a babbling, gurgling rush from the mouth of the dying man. He listened patiently, knowing he had to, and then silenced the prisoner with an unraised hand. Give me the name. Tell me the name of the one who commanded you to do all this. The man stared at him with death-glazed eyes, soundlessly mouthing one word over and over again. Court leant in close to hear it. One word, one name, one utterance that genuinely shocked the veteran arbitrator, making him sick with realisation at just how far the taint of chaos corruption had reached on this world. All the way into the Governor Regent's palace, all the way into the throne room itself. Court stared into the prisoner's eyes, searching for some last sign of chaos-inspired falsehood, but finding instead only a dying man's desperate need to be believed, a desperate need 
to be able to say one last truth after so many falsehoods and betrayals. The charge is heresy, the sentence is execution, granted with merciful absolution. Court drew his bolt pistol, firing one shot through the prisoner's heart, swift and summary. This was the merciful absolution that the recanting heretic had craved. Unabsolved, the arbitrators could have kept him alive and in agony for days on their specialist execution racks. Court left the interrogation cell, the other arbitrators following in his wake. The underground detention levels were now eerily quiet. The constant terrified drumming on the thick metal doors sealing shut the areas where the general prisoners were held had ceased hours ago. As per standard Arbites procedure, in the event of the courthouse fortress being captured or evacuated, poison gas had been flushed through the air vents into the detention caverns, killing the thousands held within them. It was a bloody unpleasant business, court knew, but a necessary one. The prisoners would have been slaughtered anyway by the chaos cultists, and many of them would have eagerly joined the heretic ranks. An arbitrator of provost martial rank awaited them at the entrance to the service levels. A communication from the marshal. He sends word that we are to proceed without delay with the evacuation here. He will rendezvous with us in orbit aboard the Redemption. Are we still in contact with him? Court asked. The arbitrator shook his head. Communications with the Governor Regent's palace are poor at best. The enemy could be trying to jam our signals, or it could even be interference from that Emperor damn defense shield. You throw enough rainwater on that thing, it'll generate enough static interference to block out at most comp signals. Court grunted, unsurprised. So far, little about this evacuation had gone as planned. On the surface, armoured Arbites' eagle shuttles emerged from their shell-proof bunkers, their pilots impatiently firing up their lifting thrusters in warning of imminent takeoff. Arbitrators, all that remained of the Imperial presence on Bellatis, after the final evacuation of all non-Arbites personnel from within the Imperium compound, abandoned their positions on the courthouse walls, running through the churned mud towards the shuttle's open-belly ramps. Shellfire landed around them as the enemy siege batteries intensified their bombardment, and Court saw a group of running Arbites troopers, suddenly enveloped in a roaring blast of flame and shrapnel as a direct hit landed amongst them. On the walls, the macro cannon turrets opened fire, and over the sound of the big guns and shuttle engines, Court could hear the howl of triumph from the surrounding heretic mob, more than 10,000 of them, the Arbites spotters estimated, as they realised that their moment of victory was at hand. Emerging from their hiding places amongst the pulverised ruins surrounding the Imperial compound, they charged forward in their thousands. Inside the macro-cannon turrets, servitor gunners fired shell after shell of high-explosive and special anti-infantry grapeshot rounds, blowing open gaping bloody holes in the enemy ranks. And still the cultists charged onwards. As they came closer... The air was filled with a terrifying staccato chatter as the courthouse's secondary defence line of heavy bolter emplacements opened fire en masse. The cultists died in their hundreds, yet still they charged onwards. Soon they would be amongst the minefields the arbitrators had seeded in the ruins around the courthouse, and after that they would be within range of the heavy flamer units that were the Arbites fortress's last line of defence. And it still wouldn't be enough to stop them. The blindly obedient servitors, now manning the wall defences, would perform their final duties well enough, court knew. 
but it would only be a matter of minutes before the cultist horde was inside the compound. Or perhaps in even less time than that. Vehicles, reported a voice on Court's helmet vox cast link, coming from the Arbites pilot of one of the shuttles that had just taken off. From the air above the fortress, the pilot had a clear view of the cultist lines. They're bringing up vehicles, armoured tractor rigs, a whole column of them coming along Regent's Boulevard from the north. Court cursed. He knew the kind of rigs these would be, huge behemoths used in the forge works of the city's northern industrial fringe to haul extra heavy loads of steel adamantium alloy. At full power, one of those monsters could smash through the courthouse's main gates with ease. Yes, definitely time to be leaving, he grimly surmised. Mahan! Where's Mahan? he yelled standing at the foot of the last shuttle in line and counting heads as the last few arbitrator stragglers boarded. Here! The shout from across the compound echoed over Court's helmet radio, and he saw the young arbitrator commander racing with his squad across the open ground of the landing area. Shells landed around them, chasing them, almost as if the cultist gunners could see them. They had stayed behind longer than ordered, checking that all the servitor gunners were functioning properly in order to buy the final evacuation wave as much time as possible. Running through the falling hail of rain and shellfire, they charged up the loading ramp, taking their places amongst the other arbitrators, now strapping themselves in for takeoff. Court took one last look around the now abandoned courthouse compound. A shell landed a direct hit on one of the macro-cannon turrets, tearing a hole through that section of the wall. From beyond the walls came another howl of triumph from the cultists. Court spat in contempt into the bloody mud. Definitely time to be going, he murmured, turning and walking up the ramp. The nervous pilot had his craft airborne even before the ramp had slid shut the shuttle pirouetting at speed into the skies above the fortress, riding a path through the storm of small arms fire that poured up at them from the ground. Opening its lifter thrusters, the craft accelerated upwards to join the rest of the shuttle formation. The last Imperium forces had left the surface of Pilatus. As of now, the planet had been officially abandoned to the despoiler. Inside the cockpit of the lead shuttle, the Arbites pilot took a last look out over the vista of the city. Other than the rocky peak of the Governor's Palace and the soaring spires of the Ecclesiarch Cathedral to the south of it, there were no other familiar landmarks remaining that he could see. The city generarium had been destroyed by sabotage weeks ago, and as the gloom of night descended on the city... All that was visible were great dark patches spread out across the face of the blacked-out city, interspersed by the random blazes of burning buildings and the scattered constellations of cultist and refugee campfires amongst the ruins. Occasionally, stuttering bursts of laz energy or phosphorus tracer fire arced up into the sky, although it was impossible to tell whether the fire was directed at anything specific it was just part of the heretics' spreading madness as they celebrated victory amongst the burning ruins of the fallen capital city. Suddenly, bright light splashed across the pilot's photochromatic helmet visor. He looked up in alarm, thinking that his shuttle was being targeted by anti-aircraft fire, but seeing nothing. There, over there, 
urged his co-pilot, pointing out towards the blank darkness. And then suddenly, there it was again, emanating from somewhere amongst the thickly forested hills to the north of the city. Brilliant, angry fingers of laser energy stabbing up into the night sky, reaching up to grasp and pull down the bright, star-like lights of the ships orbiting overhead. The planet's orbital defence laser batteries were opening fire. Chapter 11 The first volley of lance fire from the planet's surface struck the Graf Orlok on its underside, just four of its main engine array. Like many officers of his kind, Titus von Blotcher mistook a maniacally strict adherence to every rule, regulation and tenant as being marks of the true worth of a vessel's captain and drilled his crew rigorously and continuously. It was this blind obedience to Navy regulation, ironically, which was to save his vessel from catastrophe. The Graf Orlok was orbiting at 50% full void shield capacity as prescribed in Navy regulations. In practice, few commanders maintained this minimum half-power rule. Void shields were a heavy drain on a ship's energy resources, and constant operation of the complex and often temperamental void shield generators greatly increased the risks of them failing when they were most needed during battle. Here in orbit, above an Imperium world, with other naval vessels patrolling out system and able to provide ample warning against enemy attack, many naval commanders would have quietly satisfied themselves with running void shield generators at minimum power. The volley of defence laser fire impacted against the cruiser's void shields, burning through them in seconds but expending the greater part of its energy in the effort. What was left struck the Imperial ship's underbelly, scoring through the armoured hull and into the mechanical innards of its engine's power feeds. Had the void shields been at any lower level, the lance beams would have punctured through into the ship's generarium core, erupting amongst its volatile plasma reactors and possibly destroying the entire vessel in a catastrophic chain reaction. On the Graf Orlok's command deck, Titus von Blotcher screamed death and damnation at his crew, threatening them with the direst court-martial and summary execution offences if they didn't get the void shields up to full power immediately, if they didn't restore full power to the engine systems, if they didn't give him a complete damage report, if they didn't locate the exact source of the enemy fire coming at them from the planet's surface. Despite their captain's haranguing and often contradictory commands, his crew were able to accomplish the most immediately vital of these tasks. When the recharged defence batteries struck again less than a minute later, their deadly beams exploded harmlessly against the Lunar-class cruiser's now fully restored void shields. Elsewhere amongst the orbiting fleet, vessels fired up main drives and manoeuvring thrusters, seeking to escape the battery's high orbital reach. Aboard warships, gunnery officers shouted angry instructions to surveyor officers and tech priests, demanding target coordinates for their batteries to zero in on, while in the generarium of almost two dozen transports, armies of sweating engineers encased in bulky heat-resistant suits struggled to divert power from age reactors to weak and unreliable void shield generators. Meanwhile, on Bellatis, in command bunkers, Buried below the planet's surface, cultist gunnery commanders cursed their foolishness in targeting their first shots at a large and well-armoured warship vessel 
and frantically dialed in new target coordinates. There were, after all, many other more vulnerable targets to choose from. The Arcona was just another aged decommissioned transport hulk that had been hurriedly refitted and called back into active service at the outbreak of the war. But for Leto, it was the first spacecraft he had ever been on, and consequently the grandest thing he had ever seen. The shuttle journey up from Bellatus had been a voyage of marvels, the final embarkation aboard the Arcona, another such world of discoveries. Leto was confined to the lower chambers of the passenger decks, along with the other novice acolytes, but what little of the vessel that he had been allowed to see seemed to him to be an endless source of wonders and mysteries. The ships echoed with strange sounds and vibrations, and while at first they filled the impressionable young novice with great fear, he soon became accustomed to these strange, apparently meaningless phenomena that rang up from the depths of the ship's mechanical bells. This was the realm of the strange and terrible machine god, he knew. The unknowable and false, the preachers and confessors of the Ecclesiarch thundered mightily from their pulpits, a deity worshipped by the tech priests. Leto secretly wondered if the sounds he heard were not the machine god calling out in anger at the presence aboard one of his vessels of the rival priests and adepts of the imperial faith. So it was that when he and the rest of the congregation of ecclesiarch evacuees were gathered in the immense cavern space of the ship's main hold for a service of thanksgiving, Leto at first thought little of the faint but insistent sound of klaxon alarms which could be heard emanating from the other decks. Then there came a thick booming rumble from somewhere deep below their feet and the definite sensation of movement. They were moving. Leto realised in thrilled terror. The ship's mighty engines had been activated and they were moving. Perhaps they were even about to ascend into the Empyrean itself, he thought to himself with an even greater rush of fearful excitement. Others obviously had similar thoughts, and a hubbub of nervous and whispered excitement broke out amongst the ranks of the assembled adepts. Angry lector priests armed with whipping canes moved swiftly to quell the disturbance, but even the Cardinal Ashkrell himself had broken off in confusion from his droning sermon of thanksgiving as the rumblings and klaxon sounds grew even louder. Suddenly a tremendous impact threw Leto and all around him to the ground. From the far end of the chamber came a blinding flash, and he heard the voices of the adepts rise in one single choir of screams. For a moment he wondered if all ascensions into the Imperium were as dramatic and terrible as this, and then he saw the wall of flame gushing along the hole towards him, immolating all in its path. For reasons that Leto would never now understand, his last thoughts were somehow of his blind astropath master, left behind on the world below. Seconds later, the stricken Arcona blew apart, as the deadly focused streams of energy lancing from the surface of Bellatus cut it in half. Further out system, Erwin Ramus, master of the Drakenfels, tried to make sense of the first confused reports coming in from the evacuation fleet orbiting the doomed world. The Bellatus system was not a large one, scarcely a third the size of the Terran system, but the Drakenfels, maintaining watch over the outer system approaches, were still several light minutes distant from the rest of the Imperial force. The subsequent delay in normal communication channels at this distance 
It would take almost a quarter of an hour to receive and send back the simplest Vox message, necessitated the use of astropaths to instantaneously relay vital battle orders and communiques between vessels in the same star system. Ramas could only wait as his ship's astropath received word from his brethren aboard the other Imperial vessels, communicating to the Drakenfell's command crew, who would in turn feed it through to their incapacitated captain inside the strategium shell, which was both his prison and nurturing shelter. Partially linked into the pulsing machine mind of his vessel, Ramas sifted through the streams of data fed to him not only by the crew of the command deck, but also by the ship itself. From the reports from his astropath and bridge officers, he knew that the evacuation fleet was under attack, but the ship whispered to him of a threat closer and more immediate than that. From the very edge of its surveyor senses, the ship sensed something amiss, whispering the first word of it in soundless electronic murmurings, too faint for the vigilant but dull-witted surveyor monitor servitors to yet pick up. Only Ramus heard it. More than any other vessel commander within Battlefleet Gothic, aboard the Drakenfells, captain and vessel truly were as one. Ramus heard the ship's warning, and was already reacting, even as the first spoken confirmation crackled over the command deck's comnet link, with its patrolling escort craft. Pegasus reporting, we are in severe contact with five or more enemy vessels, including one capital ship. Emperor knows where they came from but they're moving in system at speed, heading for the evacuation fleet. We're directly in their path, and after that, they'll be coming your way. We'll try and hold them as long as we can. Good hunting, Drakenfels. Pegasus out. Ramus said nothing, knowing that the Pegasus was already doomed, and respecting the frigate commander's decision to go down fighting rather than retreat, buying time for the rest of the Imperial fleet. Ramus turned his attention to checking his ship's status, and issuing orders to his crew. One of the Emperor's ships may already be lost, but his vessel and crew were still very much alive, and soon they would have a battle to fight. Emerging from its hiding place amongst the gas giant's upper atmosphere, the Chaos Flutilla swept in system, the Charybdis and its centre, shielded by the protective fan of its infidel-class torpedo ship escorts. Faster than their Imperial equivalents and armed with longer-ranged weapons batteries, they were moving in attack formation, intent on destroying any enemy vessel in their path. The Pegasus was the first to fall, advancing bravely into the face of the oncoming chaos formation, but destroyed in a wave of infidel-launched torpedoes before it could bring its own formidable but shorter-ranged laser battery armaments to bear. One of its sister sword-class vessels, the Achilles, fared only slightly better, Making a darting flank attack on the Chaos Formation, it succeeded in crippling one of the Infidel Raiders in a brief but withering storm of laser fire. But before the craft could recharge its weapons batteries, depleted energy reserves, an answering blast from the Charybdis's enormous starboard plasma cannon batteries tore off the Achilles' prow and destroyed its internal power relay systems, drifting, crippled and powerless. The Achilles was completely defenceless, yet the Chaos ships contemptuously spurned the chance to complete its destruction, sweeping on past it in system and towards a far more rewarding target. Towards the Drakenfells.
Erwin Ramos had heard the princep commanders of the Legionis Titanicus described as gods of battle linked into the living minds of their titan war machines, striding across the battlefield like angry, vengeful gods, leaving armies of men and other lesser machines crushed and broken in their wake. Those who had seen the terrifying spectacle of titans in battle, and Ramus himself had, never forget it, but Ramus laughed at the notion of such power being described as godlike. No, the power to traverse the warp and travel anywhere within the almost limitless bounds of the Imperium of Mankind, the power to rain fire down from the heavens on the heads of the Emperor's enemies, the power to enter battle and command of an Imperial warship, to feel blows that would crush the greatest Titan war machines, deflect harmlessly off your armoured flanks, to send back volleys of fire that would destroy an entire Titan legion with one blast. That was power, Ramus thought. Perhaps the greatest power any mortal could ever know. To be linked into the mind of a warship, as he was, was to have only the merest inkling of what it was to be truly godlike. Ramus called his attention away from such blasphemous thoughts and back to the matter at hand. Checking the surveyor information being fed through to him, he saw the chaos formation bearing down hard on his vessel like a pack of wolves. The faster-moving escorts ranging ahead of the slower but more powerful murder-class cruiser. All ahead full, he ordered, feeling the surge of power run through the ship as additional energy was channeled through its engine systems, already burning with the heat of a miniature sun. For a while, he allowed his mind to drift through the maze of information made available to him checking status reports, issuing and clarifying further lesser orders, and Comnet communing with his second-in-command on the ship's bridge. Finally, when he shifted his attention back to the surveyors, he saw that the moment was almost at hand. The escorts were pursuing him like eager young wolf cubs, closing on the Drakenfells but surging too far ahead of the enemy cruiser. Burn, retros! he ordered, feeling the flow of power course through the ship in the opposite direction, towards its forward-firing braking thrusters. Hard to port, ninety degrees, he ordered, feeling even hearing the ship's ancient infrastructure groaning in protest at the strain being put upon it as the entire vessel swung ponderously round in space. A difficult and dangerous manoeuvre, Vessels had broken in two, or fractured their reactors attempting it, but Ramus knew his ship and he knew his crew, and felt sure that neither would fail him now. The Drakenfels was now lying a beam of its pursuers, ceasing all forward movement, and presenting its broad port side to the enemy's sights. Ramus could imagine the simultaneous fear and excitement aboard the Chaos Vessels, the Imperial cruiser had presented itself as an easy target, but at the same time it was now able to bring its fearsome portside batteries of lance turrets to bear on its pursuers. The next few moments would be vital, Ramus knew, and he intently studied the images on the Strategium Surveyor screens. Overconfident, sure of another victory, the Chaos Raiders surged onwards, closing to firing range. Had that Eldar torpedo strike of so long ago left Ramus with any lips, he would have smiled with them right now. Lock on, he commanded. Open fire, port side batteries. 
Thick streams of energy blasted out from the Drakenfell's lance armaments, flickering across the gulf of space to find the line of chaos vessels. The lance beams played over two of the infidels, exploding one apart, sending the other one drifting helpless and dying, its internal compartments and atmosphere set alight by the star-hot lance beams. Ramus did not allow himself any moment of pleasure or triumph. He knew what was about to happen. Closing to attack range, the infidels had loosed their torpedoes. Watching the surveyor screens, Ramus could see eight of the deadly missiles. One of the lance-struck vessels had succeeded in firing its torpedoes before it was destroyed, darting towards the Drakenfels. Brace for impact, ordered Ramus. All over the Gothic-class cruiser, his crew rushed to complete the command. Sealing off decks and bays, shutting off non-vital power relays, manning fire control stations, taking shelter in specially prepared, blast-proof compartments. The Drakenfell's anti-ordnance defences opened fire, destroying two of the missiles. Another two went astray, failing to acquire their target. The remaining four torpedoes hit the Drakenfell's in close succession. Two of them smashed into the rear portside turret batteries, one of them completely destroying turret Octo, the other striking the thickly armoured mantle of its twin, Turret Sextus, damaging its turning mechanism. Turret Sextus would fire again, but not in this battle. The remaining two torpedoes impacted against the cruiser's hull armour, one of them causing widespread explosive damage to one of the upper engineering decks. The damage was not serious, but the casualties of several hundred skilled and difficult-to-replace engineers were troubling. In his strategium, Ramus felt the ship's systems react to the damage done to them, even as his officers were still formulating their initial damage reports. Although no follower of the strange creed of the tech priests of the Adeptus Mechanicus, Ramus felt, as any true navy man did, that his ship was a living thing, and through his link with its numerous power systems, he felt his vessel's pain as it struggled to recover from the wounds just dealt it. Bleeding energy from severed power feeds, the Drakenfels fired up its manoeuvring thrusters, swinging round to present its lethal torpedo-armed prow to the chaos formation and shielding its injured portside from any further attack. Damaged as it was, the Imperial cruiser was still quite battle-worthy, and more than ready to prove so to its opponents. The next move was the enemies, Ramus knew. In tandem with the murder-class cruiser, the infidels could outmaneuver and outgun the Imperial ship, but almost certainly not without further loss to themselves. The veteran naval commander watched, unsurprised, as the changing images on the surveyor screens showed the chaos vessels withdrawing back towards the protective cover of the murder-class cruiser's batteries. Over the comnet, he heard cheering amongst the crew of his command deck, but Ramus knew better than to celebrate. The Chaos Force had achieved its objectives, although perhaps with greater losses than they had imagined. They had struck at the Imperial Force and driven it back in system, leaving them in command of the main approach to the Bellata system from its chief edge-of-system warp jump point. They're waiting for something, Ramus realised, and they know that it's coming. Coming soon. Somewhere within the Macarius, a life force, totally unlike the other thousands aboard the vessel, also sensed the imminent glories to be. It had found another, safer burrow deeper within the ship's metal innards. 
There had been other creatures in the burrow, more of the weak, squealing prey things that infested the ship, but it had dealt with them swiftly and brutally, revelling in its newfound strengths and powers. Nesting amongst their torn, rotting remains, it began the work of its next stage of transformation. It had subsumed much of its prey's flesh into itself, filtered it through the disease factories of its own poison viscera, and now it felt horrid new life ripening within it. Its body was gross and obscene, splitting into two, as another being, its plague twin, emerged slowly out of it like some monstrous tumour growth. As the entity gestated alone in the dark, it felt the growing purpose for its existence continue to slowly but surely reveal itself. It saw now that its original intent to spread its plague gifts amongst the prey creatures was too small and base. It was a demon creature of chaos, a child of Grandfather Nurgle, meant for far greater things than skulking and hiding in the dark. It felt the source of its existence approaching towards it through the warp. It would wait for it, the entity decided. It knew the moment of glorious fulfilment was coming, and coming soon. From orbit, the batteries of the Imperial warship spoke in reply to the glittering lance beam still piercing up from the planet's surface. As well as the damage done to the Graf Orlok and the destruction of the Arcona, the cultist-sized defence laser batteries had struck twice more, the probing, flickering fingers of energy each time seeking and finding targets within the cluster of convoy vessels. The Prometheum tanker freighter Brennus had taken a direct hit, erupting with spectacular effect and sending a rain of burning Prometheum down into the upper atmosphere of the planet. Moments later, the four transport holds of the troop carrier Varus had been eviscerated by a lance strike when the 48th Valletta Imperial Guard Regiment went into action on whatever world it was next destined for. It would have to do so, two full infantry battalions short. Now, however, the gunners of the Graf Orlok, the Borodino and the Inviolable Retribution had finally zeroed in on the cultist-seized defence laser batteries. In the planet's capital, to the terrified and shell-shocked populace still sheltering amongst the shattered ruins of Medina, it seemed that the very stars were raining death down upon them, as a curtain of solid light descended down to envelop the hills that surrounded the city. Armaments that could hurl energy hundreds of thousands of kilometres across space now turned their power on the planet's surface in an awesome display of destructive capability, gouging wounds hundreds of metres deep into the rock and soil of the hills in search of the silos, command bunkers and generator caverns buried there. In the ruins of a township at the foot of the hills, a congregation of almost a thousand chaos cultists assumed that the planet killer had come at last. They danced and howled in maddened, orgiastic joy in celebration of their impending deaths, commending their souls to the powers of the warp. A gunnery officer aboard the Borodino unwittingly granted their wish, directing a mis-aimed salvo of energy blasts away from its intended target, down the hillside and onto the heads of the cultists, wiping the township and all it contained off the face of the planet. Inside one of these buried bunkers, the loyal servant that Coison had left in command of the cultist forces there felt the growing, rumbling tremors as the impacts from the Imperial bombardment pushed closer and deeper into the rock strata. 
In front of him was a control console, linked into the chain of missile silos hidden throughout the area, a series of blinking status runes on it, signalling which missiles were ready to launch. On the floor behind him lay the body of the merchant, his throat slashed, his usefulness to the cause of chaos over. The servant felt the booming vibrations grow closer, saw the glow lamp lighting in the chamber start to flicker and fail, saw dust fall from the low, rock-crete ceiling as a network of growing cracks spread across its surface. For the war master, he intoned, leaning across the console and activating the launch runes. For the ascension of Khoisan the Faceless, I give my life for your greater glory, master. Gladly and willingly. Seconds later, the roof of the chamber caved in. A split second after that, the entire bunker complex was obliterated, vaporised, in the all-consuming furnace of white-hot plasma. But by that time, it was too late. In silos, studied throughout the rock of the surrounding hills, missile engines roared into life. In several of those silos, launch preparations were not yet complete, and work crews of cultists still inside the launch silos at the time were immolated by the engine's fiery ignition blast. Missiles shot out of their hidden silos, several of them barely clearing the ground before they were caught and destroyed in the storm of energy being hurled down from orbit. It didn't matter. As the now-dead merchant cultist puppet had told Khoisan, there were still more than enough of them for the Chaos Champion's purposes. Missile launch! Incoming torpedo wave detected from the planet's surface! Lulante looked up sharply at the surveyor officer's alert. Through the command deck's viewing bays, he could see the continued confusion amongst the evacuation fleet. Ships firing up their engines to evade the targeting scopes of the surface-based laser batteries, their panicked manoeuvrings ironically taking them out of defensive formation and making them more vulnerable to attack. The lifeless corpse of the Arcona, broken in half and surrounded by a nimbus halo of wreckage fragments, the wounded bulk of the Varus, the burned and decompression-exploded remains of the men of two Imperial Guard battalions, still spilling out of the jagged tears in its hull, and, moving amongst it all, the bright silver hull darts of the Fury Interceptors, launched just moments ago by the Macarius as it sped back to rejoin the rest of the convoy. Mr. Nida, queried Ulante, aware of the mood of unease aboard the Macarius's command deck, since Semper's departure, aware of the appraising gaze upon him of the command deck crew. Aware that his hive-world, noble house heritage still did not sit well with many of his brother officers. Aware that, even if the most hide-bound of them would now have to admit, grudgingly perhaps, that he had proven himself to be a highly able flag officer, there was still a world of difference between standing in the captain's pulpit and relaying orders issued from it. Aware that there were many here on the bridge who would question whether the young hive-world aristocrat was ready to make the transition between the two positions. Standing in his captain's customary place on the command deck's central nave, and surrounded by over 200 command crew, Hito Alante was learning just what a lonely place the bridge of an Imperial warship could be for the man who was supposed to be the vessel's master. If the Macarius's Master of Ordnance held any such doubts about going into combat under Alante's temporary captaincy, there was no clue to be found in the characteristic, gruff, clipped tones of his reply. 
in all matters relating to the conduct of his duties and the operation of his precious attack craft squadrons, Remus Nider was every part the experienced and no-nonsense naval man. Twelve missiles, reported Nider, reading off the information on his lectern screen. All of them are orbit-capable. We have elements of Storm and Tempest Squadron already launched and on course to intercept them. I also have Starhawks from Fire Drake, outfitted for planetary atmosphere operations and warming up in the launch base. With your permission, I recommend we send them in to pick over anything left down there on the ground when the gunnery crews on the Orlok and the Borodino have finished their work. Elante nodded his assent, turning to watch the events of the battle outside the viewing bay windows. Van Dyer's Oath! cursed Keitha sharply jinking his fighter craft out of the path of high-density streams of massed but unfocused autocannon fire that poured out from the, under the belly of the transport freighter. Someone tell those emperor-damned idiots aboard that Yonker heap to cease fire with their defence turrets until my interceptors are out of the way and the targets they're supposed to fire at are actually within range! A brief touch on the manoeuvring thrusters brought his fury back into position alongside those of Altamir and Zane, the three of them forming up into a wide intercept pattern. He didn't have to check his surveyor screen to see the target coming up towards them. Its engine flare showed starkly against the darkness of the night-side surface of the planet below. Concentrated intercepting fire, he told his wingman. Quite unnecessarily, he realised. Remember, it takes a lot to stop these brutes. We'll only get one shot at it. Let's make sure we do it right. Check, Commander. Came back Vale's typically relaxed and camaraderie mocking reply. And after that, you want to remind us not to open our cockpit canopy sails until we're safely landed back aboard the Mac again? From Zane, there was only the appropriately cold, curt sound of a brief comnet acknowledgement blip. Ahead of them, Keitha saw the darkness light up with the tell-tale flickering light lines of Laz cannon fire, followed seconds later by the bright corona flash of a missile harmlessly exploding just beyond the upper fringes of the upper atmosphere of Bellatis. That's one of the brutes gone, thought Keitha, just as he fired his own wing-mounted laser weapons in tandem with Vale and Zane. The triple streams of Lazfire reached out to intersect the oncoming missile, which blindly passed right into the Fury's intended kill zone. Laz blasts hammered against the dense shell of its warhead armour, ripping off fused and shattered chunks of its body casing, ruptured into almost spent tanks, and reduced engine components to melted slag. Finally, after long seconds of intensive punishment, the missile exploded apart. The Fury Formation cruised through the outer fringes of the explosion, already searching for the next target. Commander, I have another missile target on my screen, 160 kilometres away, and closing, it's... Over the comnet, Zane's voice suddenly broke off, in a momentary lapse of almost human-sounding surprise, before returning seconds later, its usual cold and emotional tone once again in place. Commander... The missile is firing retro thrusters and radically changing course. It is no longer heading towards any of the transport vessels. It is falling back towards the planet's surface. 
towards Bilatis. Elante checked the readings on the pulpit's lectern screen. What he saw only confirming the report relayed to him by the command deck surveyor section. Confirmed, Captain, reported a metal-masked tech priest. Five of the missiles have so far been successfully intercepted by our attack craft. One has been destroyed by the target vessel's own anti-ordnance defences. Four of the remaining missiles have changed course and are falling back at speed towards the planetary surface. A guidance system malfunction? asked Nida, questioning doubt in his voice. Doubtful, answered the servant of the machine god, pausing in his reply as he communed with the ship's own machine mind, checking complex matriculator-spun probabilities and calculations. From the nature of their matching trajectories, it seems most likely that they have been converted to atmospheric ballistic missile use and deliberately targeted at a pre-planned target on the planetary surface. What target? inquired Ulante sharply. Another pause, as the tech priest again checked equations fed from the ship's ancient and complex logic engines. The capital city Medina, most likely. The Palace of the Planetary Governor. Chapter 12 Panic, blind and instinctive, numbing and all-consuming, reigned supreme inside much of the Governor Regent's palace. It had begun some hours earlier, at the base of the rocky pinnacle, amongst the still-loyal Planetary Defence Force units, which had been guarding the main ground-level entrances against the threat of enemy infantry sallies through the defence shield barriers. As those at the top of the palace peak made their final preparations for departure, sealing off the upper palace from the lower levels, panic and outrage set in amongst the Planetary Defence Force troopers, as it became obvious that they were being abandoned to die along with the rest of the planet's population, in breach of what their commanding officers had promised them. Their numbers swelled by the crowds of lower-level household servants, similarly betrayed by their governor-regent master. The troopers tried to storm the upper levels of the palace and seize the shuttle bays there, clashing head-to-head with the units of elite and still-loyal palace guard troops set to guard the entrances to the upper palace. Sounds of combat echoed through lift shafts and stairways that traversed the rock of the ancient palace. Several of the lower levels were now on fire, abandoned to the cultists and refugees now streaming past the abandoned ground-level defences. Panic, along with the heat and smoke and sound of screams and gunfire, now rose up through the palace in a palpable wave, penetrating even into the sanctified surroundings of the Sarrow family chapel. At the last moment, the Governor-Regent had decided that if the living branch of the House of Sarrow were to escape the planet's destruction, then so too would the mortal remains of his honoured ancestors. The congregation of nobles and family retainers visibly fidgeted their impatience as Vitus Sarrow went about the business of conducting the necessary but time-consuming prayers and rituals involved in the disinterment of his ancestors' sacred ashes. Coin counting. While the Imperial Palace burns, thought Semper to himself, remembering the legend of the Chancery Adept, who had insisted on conducting a review of the holdings of the Imperial Palace Treasury, as the shells of the traitor Warmaster's renegade Space Marine legions rained down on the palace's inner walls. 
Still, even Saro started to hurry through the final litanies as the sounds of conflict from the levels below grew noticeably closer and then broke off altogether as flashes of violent red light flared through the high stained glass windows of the chapel, accompanied by distant sounds similar to the dry crack of a lasgun firing but magnified a hundredfold. As one, the congregation pushed out onto the chapel's outer balconies, staring in terrified awe at the scene beyond the city's edges, where dancing beams of laser light flickered up from the hills, the flash of their firing reflected in the dull mirror of the cloud ceiling that hung over the city. "'What is happening?' asked the governor-regent, his voice tight with fear and growing panic. "'The defence laser batteries are firing! I did not order this! What are they firing at? Surely the planet killer cannot be here already!' Saro looked to his first minister and the commander of his planetary defence force for answers, but Kale and General Brod could only stare at the display of flickering defence laser beams in confused incomprehension. "'I... I don't understand, your lordship.' stammered Brod, unable to tear his gaze away from the lines of flickering laser beams that continued to knife upwards, piercing through the cloud cover towards their targets in orbit. The enemy must have seized the batteries, using them to fire upon the vessels in orbit. How could this be allowed to happen? shrieked Sarah, apparently forgetting the fact that his entire world had now almost completely descended into anarchy and disorder. Suddenly, a second, more immediately vital point occurred to the Governor-Regent. These weapons! Could they be used to fire upon the palace? It was Semper, pushing his way towards the Governor-Regent through the crowd of panicked nobles and retainers, who answered. They are orbital-aimed weapons, your lordship. Their elevation is too high to fire upon surface-based targets. But that is not the issue. The issue is that we cannot delay our departure any further. The safety of the evacuation fleet is paramount. If the orbital defence batteries have fallen into the hands of the enemy, then the area of space around Bellatus is no longer secure. The commanders of the Navy escort vessels will order an end to the evacuation operation and the immediate departure of the convoy fleet from Bellatus. No matter if all the Emperor's servants, even one as significant as the planetary governor, have not yet been safely evacuated. That is what any vessel commander would order under such circumstances. Including himself, without any hesitation whatsoever, Semper thought to himself bitterly. If I were where I belong on the command deck of the Macarius, instead of down here pandering to a weakling idiot like you. What the captain says is correct, brother, said Lady Melissa, taking hold of Sarrow's hand and comforting him by holding it against the smooth, pale skin of her face. You have already done all you can, and none will ever doubt your bravery or your devotion to our beloved homeworld. But now it is time to leave this place and take up your duties in the service of the Emperor elsewhere. Yes, yes, of course. You are always so right, always so good at knowing the correct things to do, dear sister, murmured Saro, allowing his sister to guide him away from the balcony and towards his waiting attendants. The milling crowd of nobles and servants followed him, knowing that he was their sole remaining lifeline to safety. An eruption of light and sound, greater than anything that had come already, suddenly made them turn back towards the scene on the hills, where they saw solid lines of fire 
fall down through the cloud cover to envelop the hillsides where their defence laser batteries lay hidden. A thrill of fear ran through the assembled watchers, many of them crying out in terror. Even Semper, who had stood on the bridge of a warship and watched the phenomenon from high orbit, felt a clutch of fear as he witnessed firsthand the tremendous energy now being hurled down from space by the orbiting warships of the Imperial Navy. The energy blasts and cannonades of shells and missiles tore through the veil of clouds, impacting deep into the bedrock of the hills and sending powerful blast waves ripping out over the city below. Looking up through the swirling edged rents in the cloud cover, Semper could see the tell-tale flashes in the night sky firmament that signified the massed firing of a warship's weapons batteries. He saw also the unmistakable flickering glow of a ship ablaze in orbit, and scattered comet trails of fire emanating from another damaged or destroyed vessel as debris from it fell, burning down through the planet's atmosphere. Which one was the Macarius, he wondered. Which one of those flashing broadsides was his vessel? Or could it even be that doomed vessel, which appeared from the surface as only a glowing ember of light, beginning to dim now as the fires that raged through its broken hull consumed the last of its atmosphere gases? He cursed the futility of his presence here on the planet's surface. His vessel was in combat, in danger, and meanwhile he was trapped on this world, a helpless bystander to events that by all rights he should be participating in, perhaps even to the extent of being able to influence the final outcome. As if on cue, he saw and heard roaring rocket trails shoot up skywards from amongst the conflagration of the burning hills. Orbital torpedoes muttered Judah Kale, in stunned disbelief, standing beside Semper and looking in naked terror at the lines of fire now tracing a path up into space. Empress, mercy, we've been betrayed. I never knew. I never... Quickly, to the shuttles, called Lady Melissa, urgently drowning out whatever else the Governor Regent's first minister had to say. The panicked mob of courtiers needed little encouragement, and stampeded for the doors from the chapel, fighting against the surging movement of the crowd. Semper looked around for the familiar dark blue uniform of Battlefleet Gothic, spotting with relief the bulky figure of Maxim Barossa pushing towards him, followed by his other three petty officer bodyguards, all of them using fists and weapon butts to clear a path through the milling, panicked herd of Bellatus nobility. Reaching him, the four armsmen formed a protective shield around the Macarius's captain. I'd say it was time we were getting back to the Mac, sir, said Barossa. With the casual and contemptuous indifference to matters of rank and formality that Semper already realised was the distinctive mark of the man. Agreed, petty officer, said Semper, removing a voxcaster from his cummerbund sash talking into it through the heavy crackle of static interference still emanating from the palace's defence shield. The personal voxcaster's signal could not penetrate the shield and allow him to make contact with his ship, but it could still certainly reach the ship's shuttle waiting in the landing bay several levels below. Semper to Macarius shuttle. We are on our way back to you now. Stand by to take off as soon as we are aboard. The mood's turning ugly down here, Captain warned the voice of Milos Kaperian. We've got some of their ground pound of troops guarding the entrances to the bay, but they look like they're thinking about bailing out on us, or perhaps even trying to storm aboard before we can take off. What orders? In the cockpit of the shuttle, there was a pause. 
and then came Semper's answer. Clear the landing bay, by force of arms if necessary, and secure the entrances using your own crewman, Commander. If it comes through the doors and it isn't wearing a battle fleet uniform, then by all means feel free to shoot it on sight. Dozens of kilometres overhead, doom descended on the Governor's Palace. Launched out of sync with the other retargeted missiles, the first orbital torpedo reached the apex of its upwards launch trajectory. Internal gyros revolved and changed, manoeuvring thrusters fired, and the missile tumbled back towards the planet's surface. Its simple logic engine mined, finding and zeroing in on its new target. Its main drive spluttered and died, its fuel cells exhausted by the arduous climb up into the upper fringes of the atmosphere. Now only gravity and a few well-timed final bursts of manoeuvring thrusters would carry it to its target. The first missile hit the palace at tremendous speed, passing harmlessly through the defence shield as it was designed to, just as if the energy screen were the void shields of a target space vessel. By chance, it crashed through the roof dome of the Governor Regent's throne room, completely obliterating the chamber. Designed to penetrate through adamantium holes and thick bulkhead walls, the densely armoured warhead cut through the comparatively light stonework structure of the palace, planning on down through the building before finally exploding in the kitchens and stockroom levels, some twelve storeys below. The impact and detonation of the missile rocked the palace rock to its core. Ceiling and passageway roofs collapsed onto the heads of the palace's screaming inhabitants, killing them or burying them alive. Fire and blast wave damage roared through combat-filled stairways and elevator shafts, killing everything in their path. An entire surface section of the rocky spire that the palace was built on gave way, raining hundreds of tons of rock down onto the mob still milling about at the base of the palace rock. In the generarium level, buried deep within the rock itself, the impact destroyed or interrupted many of the power feeds to the shield projectors studied across the outer surface of the rock. The shimmering defence shield suddenly stuttered and then vanished. Not that it was needed any longer anyway. High overhead, the remaining three missiles were even now reaching the apex point of their own upwards trajectories before turning back down towards their shared target on the planet's surface. The impact of the blast threw Semper to the ground, dust and debris raining down upon him from the collapsed passageway ceiling behind him. The main palace lighting cut out, to be replaced by the dim radiance of glow globes set low into the passage walls. One of his armsmen bodyguard helped him to his feet, the man even respectfully and ludicrously taking time to brush some of the coating of dust from his captain's uniform. All around him, Semper heard screams of panic and groans and cries of the injured buried in the rubble behind him. From somewhere close came the bark of gunfire. Either the battle in the lower levels had spilled up to the upper palace, or the nobility of Bellatis and their servants were turning on each other in maddened panic to secure themselves a place on the evacuation shuttles. What had already been a confused rush to the landing bays now turned into a blind stampede. Captain Semper! Semper turned, seeing Byzantine and a squad of fully armed arbitrators shouldering their way through the press of bodies towards him from along the side passage. Gunfire chased them along the corridor, 
and the troopers at the rear of the Arbite squad turned to fire roaring shotgun broadsides into the darkness behind them. Your shuttle is closer than mine. Get to it and get this fat fool and his companions out of here. Byzantine gestured to the huddled group of Saro and his retinue. Semper saw the cringing, terrified figure of Hugo with them. Although there was no sign of the Munitorum Adept's two scribe assistants, no doubt lost or abandoned somewhere in the confusion. Get moving! That was a torpedo hit and apparently there's more of the same already on the way, continued Byzantine. My men and I will hold this junction and herd the rest of these wretches to the other bays on the next level down. The Arbites commander grinned in mirthless humour, seeing the questioning, doubting look in the eyes of the Imperial Navy captain. Don't worry, Captain. I have no wish to sacrifice my men or end my service to the Emperor today, or any other days in the foreseeable future. Now get moving, and we'll see each other again in high orbit. I look forward to it, Marshal, said Semper, offering his hand to Byzantine, and to seeing this world disappearing from view behind me and my ship's rear scanners. The two men clasped hands again, Byzantine pulling Semper close. Watch them. Watch them all, Captain. Do not turn your back on any of them. Byzantine hissed urgently into his ear. Semper looked in surprise at this strange imperial lawkeeper, and then nodded in unspoken understanding. And, with Byzantine's warning ringing in his ears, Semper led his group off, down the main corridor to the shuttle bay. Twice on their brief journey they encountered resistance. Once, a bank of elevators had spilled open to disgorge a terrified mass of humanity. Servants and mutineer PDF troopers fleeing the destruction and battle that now filled the levels below. Semper had hesitated to give the necessary command to clear a path through them, but Barossa had not. Open fire! he yelled, even as the armed mob surged towards them. The four armsmen's shot cannons, designed for use in the target-packed close confines of a space vessel's corridors and airlocks, were perfect for this kind of butchery, and several combined blasts from them sent the remainder of the mob fleeing away up another corridor, leaving the shrapnel-torn bodies of their dead and dying behind them. Further ahead, at the entrance to the shuttle bay, they ran straight into an ambush, black-garbed cultists firing upon them from the top of a nearby stairway, or from amongst the cover of the pillar-lined antechamber hall to the shuttle bay. A volley of shots cut through the group of fleeing navy men and Belisite nobles as they ran the gauntlet across the open space towards the bay entrance. Semper saw two of Saro's aides cut down by a burst of autocannon fire, one of the shots also catching General Brod in the shoulder. A last blast felled the armsman beside Semper. The captain grabbed the man as he fell, intending to drag him into the bay, but then found himself staring into the excavated crater of the man's skull, where the last shot had blown half his head away. Semper let the corpse drop, but snatched up the dead man's shot cannon, sighting it at the nearest black cloak figure hiding behind a stone pillar. He may have hesitated to fire upon a panicked Imperial subject just a few moments ago, but he had no such qualms concerning the servants of chaos. He fired, seeing his target disappear from view in a burst of exploded flesh and shattered stonework. Before he could find another target, he was shoved brusquely from behind, Maxim Barossa propelling him out of the firing line and into the relative safety of the shuttle bay. 
The others scrambled in behind him, one young nobleman pausing in the entranceway to return fire at the cultists, only to be instantly gunned down in a blast of last fire. They ran towards the beckoning open belly of the shuttle, the rising scream of the shuttle's engines drowning out the sound of gunfire from behind them. Blood maddened, the cultists charged after them into the open bay. Inside the craft, first gunner Daksha swivelled round in his top turret, panning the barrels of his quad-mounted autocannon across the mouth of the bay entrance. At the press of a trigger, firepower intended to blow apart armoured starfighters in an unstoppable hail of armour-piercing shells was unleashed upon the chaos followers, indiscriminately reducing them to a sprayed mess of pulped matter. Maxim Barossa stood at the top of the ramp, screaming brutal-sounding Stranaverite obscenities at the ruling elite of Bellatis as he hurried them on to the interior of the passenger cabin. He paused on the ramp, checking that there was no one else left to come. A cultist, maddened with bloodlust, made it unscathed through the hail of turret fire and charged up the ramp towards him, brandishing a blood-dripping chainsword. Maxim allowed him to get almost within striking range and then raised his bolt pistol and shot the madman through the face, dismissively kicking his fallen corpse over the side of the ramp before stepping back into the shuttle's cabin, hitting the ramp seal rune as he did so. All aboard, for Volk's sake, go, go, go! Up front, in the shuttle cockpit, Caparian needed little encouragement. He pushed forward heavily on the guidance stick as he fed power through to the main lifting jets. In a roar of blinding thruster fire, the shuttle touched off, blasting out of the open bay at reckless speed. Beyond, in the darkness of the rain-soaked Bellatus night, Caparian and Tor saw the running lights of a clutch of other shuttlecraft blasting away from the palace rock. Above them, through the cockpit canopy, they saw the blazing engine trails of the three missiles now streaking down towards the palace. Caparian hit the main engine thrusters, sending the shuttle coursing away up out of reach of the torpedo's blast radius. They almost made it. The remaining three missiles hit the palace in close synchronisation, blasting apart the entire upper palace. One of the warheads, still unexploded, burrowed deep into the living rock of the spire the palace was built upon, finally detonating near the generarium. The reactor, powered by thermal energy pumped up from deep below the planet's surface, exploded immediately, cracking open the entire palace rock as the energy stored within it surged outwards at incredible speed. From a distance, it looked as though the palace and the rocket was built upon simply erupted apart like a volcano. The blast wave swept away everything in its path, levelling the centre of Medina and hurling huge pieces of flaming rock for kilometres in every direction. Caparian and his co-pilot fought for control of the shuttlecraft as it was caught up in the initial blast wave. For a moment they thought they had succeeded in riding out the worst of it, and then the craft was struck by the hail of rock missiles thrown out by the explosion. One of the starboard engines exploded, struck by a rock chunk travelling with all the deadly velocity and impact of a macro cannon shell. Instantly transformed into shards of shrapnel, pieces of the shattered engine workings flew off, peppering into the wing and fuselage of the shuttle and causing further damage. 
One of the shrapnel fragments, a jagged piece of engine casing as large and as flat as a manhole covering, tore through the side of the passenger cabin, spinning like a buzzsaw blade through the cabin and decapitating two of the Governor Regent's court advisers as they sat strapped into their acceleration couches. Sitting behind them, Semper felt the spray of blood strike him across the face, although it took him several seconds to realise that it was not his own. In the cockpit, Caparian felt the craft begin to die around him. The controls were sluggish and unresponsive, and the panel in front of him was lit up with a rash of red, flashing warning runes. From the rear of the cockpit came the smell of burning flesh and wiring, as one of Xinyan Ko's servitors and the console system it was plugged into overloaded and caught fire. Caparian and Tor looked at each other, both of them sharing the same realisation. We'll be lucky if we can even stay airborne another few minutes, never mind make it back up into orbit. We need to find somewhere to put it down onto the ground. Where? replied Tor, looking down on the darkened city below and seeing nothing but dense, built-up ruins, no doubt crawling with more heretic madmen. Caparian brought the shuttle round in a long, slow turn in an attempt to maintain altitude while they scanned the ground below for a landing place, instead seeing only ruins and burning buildings. Then briefly, a tall, instantly recognisable spire shape stood starkly silhouetted against the nighttime horizon. There, Caparian pointed excitedly, the Ecclesiarchy Cathedral. If it's like every other one I've ever seen, then it'll have a wide open square around it, maybe even an inner courtyard we can try and touch down in. He glanced at his co-pilot, suddenly remembering something else. And didn't someone say something about it still being under Ministorum control? Be good to have some friendly Imperium faces around us while we wait for a rescue shuttle from the Mac to come and pick us up. Devane woke from a dream-troubled sleep. He had seen himself naked and alone on an empty and barren plain, running from some vast and nameless threat, which was close behind him and pursuing him. He dared not look behind him to see what it was, but he could see its massive shadow reaching out towards him, stretching past him to blot out everything around him. The shadow of the thing spread out over the entire world, and no matter how far or how fast he ran, he knew he would never escape it. It was not the first time he had had the dream in these last few weeks, and he knew from private talks with the members of his adopted flock when they came to share their doubts and worries with him that many others here had experienced similar nightmares. But tonight the dream had seemed far more vivid, far more immediate and terrifying. Father Confessor, a hand gently but nervously shook him, trying to rouse his still sleep-dulled senses. Devane automatically reached for the power sword lying beside him, assuming that the heretics had returned in force yet again to mount another attack on the barricades. But the Frataris elder, who was bending down over him, laid his hand on the scabbarded hilt of the weapon. No, father, confessor, not another attack, but there is something outside you must see. The imperial preacher followed the Frataris across the great floor of the cathedral. Taking care not to step on any of the blanket or cloak-wrapped figures huddled everywhere around his feet. Many of them were sleeping, trying to snatch a precious few hours' rest, as Devine had been doing, after the latest heretic assault had been successfully repulsed. Several of the sleepers cried out or moaned in their sleep, perhaps haunted by dreams similar to Devine's, while from elsewhere around him 
came the differently pitched moans of the injured and dying. The cathedral infirmary was full to overflowing, and now the white-habited sisters of the Adeptus Sororitas Order Hospitala attended to them out here too, amongst the thousands of other pilgrim refugees sheltering inside the Emperor's house. From outside, Devane heard the sounds of distant but powerful explosions, the Imperial Guard veteran in him immediately identifying it as a naval barrage. He was not surprised that the orbiting warships were now firing upon the planet's surface. To Devane, it was merely a sign that the planet-wide civil breakdown was entering its final agonising stages, merely by the fact that he must have been so exhausted that he and hundreds of other exhausted Frataris fighters had actually managed to sleep through the noise and earth-shaking impacts of an orbital bombardment. Fretteris brethren crowded the barricades outside, although Devane couldn't help but notice just how thin their ranks were, compared to even just a few days ago. The heretic attacks, although beaten off for the moment, had taken a heavy toll on his flock. The brethren manning the barricades were pointing in nervous excitement to the fiery glow on the horizon and Devane could still see orbital barrage fire streaking down from space to strike at whatever hapless target there had incurred the wrath of the mighty Imperial Navy. It was the other glow, closer and brighter though, that caught his attention. Unless he was much mistaken, it was coming from where the Governor's Palace was situated. But suddenly something else caught Devane's attention, a thin whining noise like the sound of a shuttle's engines, distant but apparently coming closer. Quiet, he called. Listen, where is it coming from? There, one of the Frataris pointed. Over there. Devane saw the running lights of the approaching shuttle coming towards them, skimming low across the night sky, and almost instantly realised that something was very wrong. As it came closer, he saw why. What he thought were additional, irregularly flashing running lights were flames licking around its tail and starboard wing, and there was a pained, worryingly vulnerable tone to the craft's struggling engine sound. It dropped down fast, too fast, towards the cathedral square. Devine saw flame-scorched naval markings on the underside of its wings, and even though its pilot somehow managed to pull it out of the dive and prevent it crashing nose-first into the middle of the square... Its tail still clipped and broke against the rooftop of one of the townhouse buildings that surrounded the open forum. Look out! Take cover! shouted Devane, pulling gorping Frataris down from the barricades as the shuttlecraft belly flopped down towards them. It hit the ground hard, landing on its underside, shattering the cobbled surface and ploughing a ragged furrow across the already scarred face of the square. Fire from the remains of the heretic force, still hiding out in the buildings on the other side of the square, rattled off its broken armoured hull. But even the enemy seemed too stunned by its sudden, dramatic appearance to properly bring their guns to bear. Its nose smashed through the barricade on the north side of the square, the impact snapping off one of its wings and spinning it around in a hull-crushing but highly effective breaking motion. For a moment, no one moved. And then the first shots started ringing out from those few brave or foolhardy Frataris brethren who had remained at their posts on the barricade. As they opened fire at the scattered line of heretics who were attempting to charge across the square in the wake of the crash shuttle. More Frataris rejoined their brethren on the barricades and the heretics quickly and wisely retreated back to cover again. Devane 
wearily approach the crashed wreck of the shuttle, hearing the first groans of pain and sounds of movement from within its split-open fuselage. A human shape, so big that for a split-second Divine almost thought it might be that of a space marine, stumbled forward through one of these rents. Nervous Fritaris raised their weapons in alarm, but Devane recognised the uniform the figure was wearing as being that of an Imperial Navy petty officer and signalled for them to lower their weapons. Maxim Barossa nursed his crash injuries, spitting out a mouthful of bloody saliva and shattered teeth fragments as he studied his surroundings, finding himself confronted by an Imperial preacher and the assembled ranks of the Fritaris faithful. Volk me, he muttered, favouring Divine and his flock with a savage, bloody-toothed grin of impious bemusement. Either I'm dead, and despite everything, still manage to end up in the same place as all the rest of you miserable, prayer-mumbling bastards, or I'm alive, but still stuck on this rain-sodden dump of a world. All things considered, I'm not sure which idea I like least. Chapter 13. Somewhere, far out on the fringes of the Bellatus system, something vast and terrible ripped its way out of warp space and back into the realm of the real universe. Following in its wake, dragged through the breach in the fabric of reality by the pull of the object's massive warp drive field, were numerous smaller vessels, some of them formidable weapons of war in their own right, but none of them as terrible and powerful as the object they clustered around. This far-out system, it would take many light minutes for the energy of the object's unique and massive warp-burst signature to register on the surveyor screens of the Imperial vessels gathered further in-system, but already the strong but localised disturbances in the currents of the warp caused by the object's arrival would have been sensed by every psychically sensitive being in the Pilatus system. On every Imperial vessel amongst the evacuation fleet, astropaths and navigators suddenly reeled in shock and nausea as an overwhelmingly powerful wave of warp-borne energy surged through their minds. Even before they had begun to recover from the shock of the assault on their psychic senses, they were already putting through emergency comnet calls to their vessel's captains. In the deepest reaches of the lowest decks of the Macarius, the growing demon thing thrashed in spastic ecstasy, its disease-ridden, otherworldly flesh, reacting in instinctive symphony with the waves of invisible warp energy that lashed through it. It blindly realised something of the nature of the object that now sat on the system's edge, but it also sensed out there the presence of something far more important and personal to it, something familiar, something like it that was blessed with the gifts of the grandfather. In paroxysms of joy at this knowledge, the demon thing entered the final stages of its transformation. On the surface of Bellatus, on the outskirts of Medina, Khoisan, the faceless, turned his featureless visage up to the clouded night sky, sensing the arrival of the blessed object. Another involuntary shudder of imminent and glorious transformation ran through his chaos-warped body. His moment of ascendance would come soon now, he knew, but he sensed also that there was still one more task required of him. He cast his eyeless gaze around him, studying the darkened horizon of the ruined city, 
Behind him, the hills to the north were ablaze still, the target of the thunderous orbital bombardment. Ahead of him was the smoking pyre of the governor's palace. Something further to the south drew his attention, and he saw the dark spires and turrets of another edifice jutting up from amongst the jagged ruins around it. Coisson nodded to himself in understanding. The Ecclesiarch Cathedral, somehow miraculously untouched by the destruction which had been visited on the rest of the city. Around him his cultist followers howled and gibbered in fear and excitement, sensing in their own crude way the arrival of the object on the edge of their planetary system. Coisson silenced them all with a curt gesture, pointing at the spired peaks in the distance. Gather others of your kind from amongst the ruins, he commanded. There is still work to be done. Sobek let the Imperial Tarot Pack fall from his hands, seeing in his mind's eye, even before it happened, the thin, brittle, and impossibly precious material of the cards shatter on impact with the hard stone floor. He would have no more need of them now. With one last exception, the time of visions and prophecies was over. The worst was now known, and had finally come to pass. The planet killer had arrived in the Balatus system, and the time to the planet's imminent destruction could be measured not in weeks or days, but now in mere hours. Riding in the rear guard of the Chaos fleet, the virulent swept into the Blatus system in the warp wake of the massive planet killer vessel. During the journey through the warp, many vessels had joined with or departed from the giant weapon's escort fleet, either dispatched to other tasks or summoned by the will or whim of the despoiler. The virulent had joined the fleet from choice, following its own psychic call through the warp, which, by coincidence or otherwise, had led it to the same destination as the planet killer. From the bridge of the plague ship, Bullus Siddle sensed the presence of the thing that had unknowingly called out to him through the warp, the thing that had drawn him here in pursuit of his prey. It was one of his own plague children, birthed from the disease gift that he had bestowed on one of his followers, now hatched out and growing in secret in the belly of the hated enemy vessel, Macarius. The Imperial fleet would flee before the planet killer's advance. Cyril was sure, but there would be no easy escape for the Macarius. Psychically linked to his demonic plague child aboard that ship, he would take steps to ensure it. For himself and for Grandfather Nurgle, Cyril would take revenge on the Macarius and its crew for both the destruction of the Grandfather's warship Contagion and the humiliation of the defeat at Helia Free. And there we have it, boys and girls. The end of another part. It's getting good, in it? It's getting good. I'm looking forward to reading the next one because I cannot, for the life of me, remember what happens in that novel. I cannot remember. Um, obviously, I think it's something to do with it. Like, it's like the end of the Gothic sector. I think I did read it, actually. I've got, like, really vague memories of it, but I'm not touching it yet. I'm reading some other novels first. Uh, and I don't want to confuse myself by starting, like, four novels at once, which is something I end up doing. And then I'd never finish any of them for months. But anyway... That's besides the point. Thank you, everybody, supporting the channel. You can see your names going by here. Really appreciate it. Really, really, really helps. If you'd like to support the channel, please consider becoming a YouTube member or joining uh, the Patreon. Either one of them is fantastic. I really appreciate it. You know, um, anything you could do is, is great. But 
If you can't do that, which I understand, please do like the video and please make a comment in the comments and let me know what you think. That all really helps. It really, really does help. Thank you. And uh, share this if you know anyone who think you think might like it. Um, I'll carry on working on them. I'll carry on getting this out and other stuff. Um, other stuff is starting to come out now. Should be by the time this goes out. So yeah, stay tuned. More stuff coming. Always more stuff. I'm uh, I'm kind of doing this a bit more regular than I have been for the last couple of months now. I've got my computer sorted and... Um, you know, we're back to normal, you know, content's going to be regular now going forward. So uh, I hope you enjoy what's to come. Again, thank you all very much, and I will be back again soon. Thanks very much. Ta-ra, bye-bye.